Last week was the parting of the Red Sea. We talked about that being the end, the climax of Act 1 of the book of Exodus. And now, as you, as you ought to, if you're coming to the end of an act, we've got a big musical number to celebrate. We've got Exodus 15. This is the song of Moses and of Miriam, of course. It was the whole children of Israel singing this. And we're going to take this opportunity to talk about the role of music and worship music, especially in the church. Music has always been a part of the worship of the Lord, going all the way back here. The first thing we have that recorded doing as they left the land of Egypt was they sang a song. We continue that tradition today. We just sang a few songs, and we're going to do that again, and we're going to continue to do it. And there's a lot of, lot of things you could talk about, and there are a lot of things as I went through this. I'm like, oh, I also should say that. I also should, should say that. I'm only going to draw out a few things from this passage here Some of them are more tenuously connected than others, but they're important to talk about. And I know that there are few things more opinionated than people and their worship music. Everybody has an opinion. Everybody has a style they like. Everybody has a way of doing it, the way they grew up. A lot of people have very strong opinions about what should not be done. A lot of folks get very upset if they don't feel like it's been done enough. Some people get upset if it's being done too much or if we don't have enough hymns or we have too many hymns or the songs have too many words or the songs are shallow and don't have enough words or it's too old-fashioned of a style, it's too modern of a style. Everybody has opinions on this. So we're going to look at this passage and learn a few things that we can know for sure from the scripture. Some of this will be a reflection of our philosophy of ministry as a church, but I hope you'll see that they're grounded in the scripture, even if somebody would apply it a little bit differently. So we're going to start by looking at the whole section, drawing out what I think is a cool theology point that you can trace through the rest of the Bible, and then we're going to come back and look at 10 lessons for worship music from Exodus 15. So let's begin. We'll read this whole song together. Then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him. My father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his host he cast into the sea, and his chosen officers were sunk in the Red Sea. The floods covered them. They went down into the depths like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power, your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. In the greatness of your majesty, you overthrow your adversaries. You send out your fury. It consumes them like stubble. At the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up, the floods stood up in a heap, the deeps congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy said, I will pursue, I will overtake, I will divide the spoil, my desire shall have its fill of them. I will draw my sword, my hand shall destroy them. You blew with your wind, the sea covered them, they sank like lead in the mighty waters. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? You stretched out your right hand, and the earth swallowed them. You have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. The peoples have heard, they tremble. Pangs have seized the inhabitants of Philistia. Now are the chiefs of Edom dismayed. Trembling seizes the leaders of Moab. All the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. Terror and dread fall upon them. Because of the greatness of your arm, they are still as a stone. 
till your people, O Lord, pass by, till the people pass by whom you have purchased. You will bring them in and plant them on your own mountain, the place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode, the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. The Lord will reign forever and ever. For when the horses of Pharaoh with his chariots and his horsemen went into the sea, the Lord brought back the waters of the sea upon them. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground in the midst of the sea. Then Miriam, the prophetess, the sister of Aaron, took a tambourine in her hand, and all the women went out after her with tambourines and dancing. And Miriam sang to them, Sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. Okay. Now, obviously, this is a song. It says in verse 1, they sang this song. And that is why, probably, if you have a more modern translation, it is laid out in poetic verse rather than in paragraphs of prose. And one of the, the biggest desires of my heart is to hear what these things sounded like when they were played and sung. Because you can read it, oh, that's fine. But uh, until you've heard it, you know, I mean, consider the, the Christmas carol, Oh, Holy Night. You can read it in about five seconds. But there, when somebody gets a hold of that song and sings it, oh man, it just hits your heart so hard. But it's in there and, and it's a privilege that we get to read it and look at it. Now you see this, obviously Hebrew poetry is different than English poetry. Hebrew poetry focuses on repetition and what's called parallelism. English poetry focuses on rhyme we get that from the, the Latin and Greek roots of our language. The Romance languages favor rhyme and meter as well. The number of syllables, which comes from the Anglo-Saxon origins of the English language. These are nerd facts. I find them fascinating, but there you go. Uh, every, every culture has its own way of doing poetry. Hebrew is all about structure and, and the way that it's laid out more so than, than the rhyme scheme, which is what we are, we are into. And that parallelism, anytime you see lines that are like almost repetitious, like where it says, this is my God and I will praise him. My father's God and I will exalt him. It's really saying the same thing twice. It also can do that and say one thing and then the opposite of that. The two things can come together and, and say one thing, but it's that, that, that doublet, that, that two line structure is, is very familiar in Hebrew poetry. And of course, poetry of all kinds makes a broad use of figurative language, which include things like hyperbole, which is exaggeration for dramatic effect, symbol, it uses metaphor and simile, which of course are comparisons, if you remember from your English class. And for that reason, it should be interpreted not differently than regular scripture, but with all of that in mind. You, know, you interpret the epistles a certain way because they're being laid out in a very certain structure. You interpret a narrative differently than you would interpret poetry. And, and there's a lot of poetry in our Bible. In fact, there are entire books of the Bible that are just poetry. Psalms comes to mind, right? Lamentations, Song of Solomon. Large swaths of the prophets are written in poetic form. Now, as far as this poem itself goes... I read four or five different commentaries, and they all outlined and structured it differently, which tells me that we're not too sure about how best to break it as far as in the strophes or the stanzas, as we would call them. But the ESV, I thought, was as, did as good a job as any, where the first three verses are a celebration. It's a generic celebration of what God has done. Verses 4 through 10 are a remembrance of what happened. And then verses 11 and 18 are hopeful. They're looking forward to what God is going to do next. And that, I think that's as good as any, but 
you can break it down your own way if you like. Now, we've got two songs here, of course, verses 1 through 18, it says, are the one that Moses and the people of Israel sang. And then in verse 21, we have the one that Miriam and the women sang. And you can see that Miriam, her, her song, it's only two lines, is basically the same as the first line of Moses' song. And there are a lot of ideas about why that is. Um, there's one I thought was kind of funny. There is a feminist reading of this passage that says Miriam's song was condensed to only one verse and put at the end, and Moses was given all the glory, even though Miriam clearly wrote the whole thing. And I thought that was kind of funny. It's like you have no evidence for saying that. You just you want the woman to be on top, which is how feminist theology tends to work. But I think here's an idea, and I think this is, this is a good way of looking at this, that when they first crossed the Red Sea, Right? I mean, this is a very well laid out, structured poem. You know, it's, it's doubtful that the first time they sang out, this just came out of them. But consider that maybe Miriam and the women had that first line, Sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider thrown into the sea. And they repeat that, and they repeat that, and there's a melody that's attached to it. And then over time, maybe over the next few days, they expanded it out, and they made a whole song out of it. In fact, there are a lot of worship songs being written this way today, where Worship albums will include a spontaneous section of the CD where there's no structure. They're just playing a chord progression and then the worship leader will sing something and they'll catch on one or two lines that are really powerful. And very often that's the songwriting process. They'll take that and they'll make something out of it. It could be, and I think it is, that this is exactly what you've got going on here. There's no reason to assume that it somehow violates the inerrancy of scripture to say that Moses couldn't have worked on this later. In fact, I think it's pretty clear that that's exactly what did happen. So you've got this song here. You will see lines from this psalm recorded and repeated and kind of reworded throughout the rest of the Bible. The, the Red Sea event was the moment, as I've said, for the children of Israel. And so it is used throughout the Bible as the symbol of deliverance. Very often will it use the Lord drawing them out of the depths or the Lord coming and parting the waters. And I, I wanted to draw out one I thought very cool line of, of inquiry into the Old Testament that you guys could do on your own time because I don't have enough time to do it justice tonight. But the Old Testament makes use of common imagery from this time in order to glorify the Lord. What do I mean by this? In the culture that the Israelites lived, their creation mythology was that there had been a the, the waters, the depths that were there. There was a giant sea monster swimming around in it. And then the gods came and killed the sea monster and used his body to make the world. Now, we know that that's not what happened. But the symbol of mastery over the depths and mastery over the sea monster became an image that was familiar to them to describe the power of God. Now, here come the children of Israel, and they've got this story where they are backed up against the sea, and God himself parts the waters, shows his mastery over the depth, and draws them out in, the, in that process, killing the Egyptians. And they use that image of the Leviathan, you've heard of this before, to glorify the Lord and say, y'all can say whatever you want about your gods. Our God actually did this. So there's tons of these verses in here. I'm only going to have time to read five, which is a lot. But I want you to see this. It's so cool. And it's, I hope it'll be a fun Bible study for you. You can see how they're clearly describing the Red Sea, but they're going beyond that as they describe it. This is Psalm 74, verses 13 through 14. You divided the sea by your might. 
You broke the heads of the sea monsters on the waters. You crushed the heads of Leviathan, and you gave him as food for the creatures of the wilderness. So as you divided the sea, you're like, all right, cool, that's what happened. And they say, and you crushed the head of Leviathan. I say, well, I read the story, and there was no sea monster there that God destroyed. But what are they saying? This was a a, a figure, it was a mythological figure in this culture, the dragon that lived in the waters. He was also known as Rahav. Don't confuse that with Rahab, which is a hard B at the end of that sentence, who was a lady that lived in Jericho. This is Rahav. And they would take that image, apply it to Egypt, and thereby any of their enemies that the Lord defeated by showing his mastery over the deep waters. So by the dividing the sea, they say, you broke the head of the sea monster and crushed the heads of Leviathan. I think that's interesting. Heads. Leviathan is more than one heads in that head, in that image. What about Isaiah 51 verse 9? It says, awake, awake, put on strength, O arm of the Lord. Awake as in days of old, the generations of long ago. Was it not you who cut Rahav in pieces, who pierced the dragon? We say, when did God kill a dragon? Well, keep reading. Was it not you who dried up the sea, the waters of the great deep, who made the depths of the sea a way for the redeemed to pass over? So in that image, Rahav is Egypt. In fact, Isaiah 30 verse 7 explicitly connects Egypt with Rahav. So what are they saying? God showed his mastery over the sea. And the way that they poetically demonstrate that is by saying God killed the monster that lived in the sea. Isn't this cool? I think this is pretty cool. Not only that, they extend this imagery to creation as well, which again in this time period was pictured as slaying the great serpent. This is not the way that God actually did it. That's why we have Genesis chapter 1. The Lord said, all I had to do was speak, guys. It just came into existence, right? But when the poets get hold of this, they're going to attribute to the Lord that which the other nations have attributed to their false gods. Job 26, verses 12 through 13, which is before the book of Exodus, by the way. By his power, he stilled the sea. By his understanding, he shattered Rahav. By this wind, the heavens were made fair. His hand pierced the fleeing serpent. The fleeing serpent, Rahav, the sea monster. Job 9.13 also talks about this. So when God created the world, you see how they're attributing all this. God's victory over the sea, which for them was the most unpredictable thing in their world. They had no idea what was down there. They had no idea what it was going to do. They had no meteorology at this time. We have it. We still hardly know what it's going to do, right? So for them, it became a symbol of uncertainty and chaos and sin. But God shows up and says, I can part the waters when I want, and I can close them when I want. I can still the waves. I can whip up a storm if I want to. And this imagery is also used in the Bible to describe what God is going to do at the end of the world, that God will defeat the dragon. Isaiah 27, verse 1. In that day... There's always a tip-off. We're talking about the day of the Lord, the end. In that day, the Lord with his hard and great and strong sword will punish Leviathan, the fleeing serpent. Leviathan, the twisting serpent. And he will slay the dragon that is in the sea. Isn't that cool that at the end it talks about the Lord defeating a bunch of sea monsters? I don't have time to do this, so maybe I shouldn't, but I'm going to. In the book of Revelation, what do we see keeps happening? A bunch of monsters keep crawling up out of the sea that symbolize the nations of that time. And we can say, they go, why is there a beast and a dragon coming out of the sea? 
Well, it goes right back to what they were saying in the Old Testament, that there's going to be these beasts that God is going to destroy and scatter. God's victory over the waters and the defeat of Egypt. You could call Egypt that old crocodile, right? Well, what lives in the Nile River? It's a gnarly, angry sea monster. It's a little one, right? But that was kind of the symbol of Egypt. And God establishes his power as creator, as the one that will judge the world, and as the victor over any enemy that wants to raise itself against God's people, symbolized by a sea monster. How cool is that? If you think the Bible's boring, you need to keep reading. <laughs> That's why it says in verse 11, who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? False gods, and our God is the real deal. That's why I love that song that we sing, our God is greater, our God is stronger, our God is higher than any other. We're boasting in the Lord, right? So you can see how this Red Sea crossing God chose to do it this way. Why? Well, because it's universally significant, right? God can part the waters. But it also was culturally significant. God is able to deliver his people through the one thing this generation had no control over. And in chased the most powerful nation in the world and God swallowed him up in his depths. Our God is the one who rules over the raging waters and any monster that dares attack his people. One more, Psalm 89, verses 9 and 10. You rule the raging of the sea. When its waves rise, you still them. You crushed Rahav like a carcass. Psalms are intense, by the way. Can we just say that? You crushed Rahav like a carcass. You scattered your enemies with your mighty arm. And this built great faith in the people that these other nations are going to be defeated before the Lord. Because if God has mastery over the thing that we have no mastery over, then how much more are these nations? that are just men. So I hope that y'all could maybe track this down. Just do a word study on, on the word Rahab, R-A-H-A-B. Look, make sure it's not Rahab, the lady from Jericho. That is the soft B with more of a V sound. And look up Leviathan. Look up the serpent anywhere it talks about that. And, and just see all this imagery that's in the Bible that we can skip over. You know, and, and sometimes the footnote will just say it represents Egypt, but there's a whole depth, no pun intended, to that behind it. So... This was huge for them. And that's why this, this song would be repeated and retooled and reused. So imagine the children of Israel marching through the wilderness in ranks, in military formation, singing this song, this anthem, this militant anthem on their lips, while the glory of the Lord goes before them in a pillar of cloud and a pillar of fire. It's an intimidating sight, isn't it? That's, that's something that you, you miss, how... how militant this is. It's not just, oh, the, the poor slaves have been freed. Oh, they're not just freed. They're on the march, baby. The Lord is leading them to battle, to war. And there's no way they can lose because God is with them. Great psalm. Great line of, of study to do in your Bible and hope you can apply it to your life too. All the things that seem so chaotic and unpredictable and you have no idea what's going on in it. The Lord has control over all that. And you can connect this. I mean, how many ways can you connect this? In creation, right? The Lord hovered over the face of the waters and he separated the waters from the land. And then later on, he, he's the one that causes the floodwaters to rise and the floodwaters to recede. He's the one when Jonah flees from him, he whips up the sea. And then Jonah falls into the sea. And what happens? He gets swallowed by a sea monster, big fish. And then he gets spit out again. So God can take him down and he can bring him out. Jesus walked on the water and calmed the storm of the wave. This is all connected. And it's all a really great study we'll have to come back and do another time. But I wanted to give you a little taste of it because it's so cool to see here. But let's take our time now. Let's go through this and let's see 10 lessons that we can learn 
from this passage about worship music. Is worship limited to music? No, but it's a big part of it, especially if you're reading your Bible. So we're going to go through this nice and slow, and these are in no particular order. I just drew these out as I went through this passage, the things that it reminded me of and lessons that I thought we could learn from it. And we're going to have to go quick, but we'll have the cross-references up there for you to look up on your own time. Let's just begin with verse 1. Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously, the horse and rider he has thrown into the sea. By the way, if you've seen the movie The Prince of Egypt, when they're singing the song, there can be miracles when you believe, and there's a break in the middle, and they start singing in Hebrew, this is what they're singing right here. Ashiran Adonai Kigaoga'a. I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. So that song that they all start singing together, that is straight Hebrew out of your Bible. Just a cool little thought I, I wanted to get it there. And if you want to go listen to it again, you can hear what it might have sounded like. But this is our first lesson. Just by reading, I will sing to the Lord. Song and music are important forms of worship to the Lord. That's the first basic, basic lesson. Music matters to God. And this is evident if you're reading your Bible. The book of Psalms. Jeremiah is actually the longest book of the Bible, but Psalm has the most chapters. 150. God put 150 songs in the middle of your Bible. So clearly God is a fan of music. God is a fan of things being sung. And in fact, Quite often in the book of Psalms, sung loudly. Even in heaven, we have songs being raised up by the people of God and the angels. Revelation 15.3 actually says they sang the song of Moses. In fact, the people of God sing more often than the angels do, if you look at your Bible closely. When they established the temple, David, of course, made sure that there was loud, skillful music being played. David himself was called the sweet psalmist of Israel. In 1 Chronicles 15, 16, David also commanded the chiefs of the Levites to appoint their brothers as the singers who should play loudly on musical instruments, on harps and lyres and cymbals to raise sounds of joy. David's like, if we're going to be worshiping the Lord, we've got to have some music going in here. And I want it to be loud and joyful. This was a priority for him. Something to be said for the fact that the man after God's own heart was a man who spent a lot of his time singing and writing songs to the Lord. And in the New Testament, you are admonished to sing to the Lord in direct parallel with teaching and exhortation in the church. Colossians 3.16 Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. That's great. What else? Singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your heart to God. Ephesians 5.19 is actually a parallel verse and says more or less the same thing. We sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs tonight. So many people want to pit worship and teaching against each other, but that is a bad idea. A really bad idea because the Bible doesn't do that. When Paul is telling the church, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, we hear word of Christ, we immediately think Bible study. And he gets right into teaching, right? But the second half of that verse is singing, If the word of Christ is dwelling in you, you're not just growing in your mind, you're growing in your heart. And there's a song that's coming out of you. Well, I just prefer to to study and the songs don't really do anything for me. Then, Then you have not fully understood that word that you claim to be studying so closely. And there are those that say, well, the spirit was moving so much and the music was so great, we didn't even need to open our Bibles. That's also troublesome, isn't it? 
You need both. You need to have the teaching, even if it is going to break the mood. If it's going to break the mood, you need to learn how to apply that mood to the study of the word, too. And need to learn how to maybe calm down a little bit and be instructed so that when you stand up to sing again, you know what you're singing about. Why music? Well, because music moves us. I find it so odd that we think that's a bad thing. We think, well, these new worship songs, they just get your foot stomping and your heart thumping, and we shouldn't do that in the church. Why not? Isn't that exactly what music should do? If music gets you excited and it stirs your body and it stirs your soul and your heart, why not use that for the glory of the Lord? You think God wants us only to sing songs that don't move us? We leverage everything for the glory of the Lord. Well, it's manipulative. No, it's not. You know that. You ever been felt manipulated by worship? Maybe you could, but most of the time you get reminded of what you're supposed to be doing anyway. Right? We sing about everything too, by the way. Right? We, there was more music in the United States of America than there's been music anywhere before. So there's no excuse for us not using that same passion and those same skills in the house of the Lord to praise his name. Music matters. Go to verse 2. The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him. My Father's God, and I will exalt him. I like that phrase, my God and my Father's God. And we're going to use it as our second lesson. Your God and your Father's God. Multi-generational. You need old songs and new songs in the church. told you, some of these are going to be real doctrinal. Some of them are going to be real practical. This song would be sung repeatedly. In Psalm 90, you have another song of Moses recorded. Deuteronomy has another song of Moses. There are some old songs in the Bible. The Psalms right there are, are old, right? In 2 Samuel chapter 1, 17 and 18, when Saul died, it says David lamented with this lamentation, and it follows, over Saul and Jonathan his son, and said it should be taught to the people of Judah. It says everyone in this land is going to know the song of the death of our first king. So these songs were written to be remembered and to be sung for generations. Old songs are important. They remind us what God has done. And they connect us with the generations that have gone before. Hymns are no longer cultural. Right? right? When they were writing hymns, most songs were like that. That's how just about every song was, was kind of hymny, very structured and, and a very certain way of writing the melody. But we don't really do that anymore. But that doesn't mean that you should abandon them and say, no more, we don't want anything to do with those. As are spirituals, for example. You know, we never want to forget those old spirituals that have been sung or those songs that were written in, across the frontier as the Americans spread across. Like, that's part of our heritage. We don't want to forget those songs. We're singing Leaning on the Everlasting Arms tonight. We should never forget that song. Be Thou My Vision, same thing. But we also ought to be writing new songs to give voice to the current generation. Psalm 33, verse 3 says, Sing to him a new song. Play skillfully on the strings with loud shouts. You know, like shouting in worship? The Lord likes it. Six times in the Psalms it says, Sing a new song. Styles change, but that's less important. Times change. And new songs should be written for those times by skillful Christians. In fact, we have far more admonitions to sing new songs than to rehash old ones in the church. Every move of God, every legitimate revival move of God has had a fresh outpouring of new music. And you know what? It's always been resisted. 
I mean, I mean, when they first started to sing, when Pope Gregory brought the Gregorian chants into the church, people didn't like it. They thought it was blasphemous. You shouldn't have singing in the church. Then later on, during the, the Renaissance period and things like that, they started adding harmonies. Harmonies. So you're saying that we should all have a different voice and not be united in our worship to God? That's what they did. Then they started adding instruments. Instruments, you're trying to take away from the voice of God's people in the church. And we look at that and say, that's ridiculous. Of course not. Then they start to write hymns. Martin Luther and the reformers started to write new hymns in the common language. You're not using the holy Latin tongue. You're making the word of God vulgar and putting it in normal people's mouths. And those, those melodies you're using, that, that's vulgar pub music. And Martin Luther goes, yeah, that's, that's why people are singing it. Because it's their kind of music. I mean, all the way down the line, the Methodists wrote new songs. All the way down to the early, uh, the Jesus movement in the 60s. They were writing new songs. People didn't like it. I think it's hilarious that all of these, I mean, I'm not trying to throw shade, so I'm not going to name names. But these seminaries and Bible colleges and pastors that were calling out Calvary Chapel in those days saying, you are bringing the devil's music into the church with your guitars and your long hair and these choruses and, and writing songs in minor keys that are dissonant. You're, you're corrupting. And, and now they have schools of worship. And they're writing some awesome contemporary worship songs. They came around. We're not going to hold it against them, right? We always, it always happens. Some of us need to look back. We've got to remember what God has done and say, you know what? I should probably learn to appreciate this. If I don't, I should learn to appreciate it. And it, even just to appreciate things from other cultures. There's a wonderful story of Diedrich Bonhoeffer, who was a uh, resistor of Hitler in the 1940s, where he came over to America and spent some time there. And he went to uh, an African-American church in Harlem, and he loved the music so much, he bought and started collecting records that had uh, some black gospel music on it. And he loved it. And he would listen to it. And he'd play it to all of his academic egghead German buddies. Like, you've got you've got to listen to this music. It's so good, right? <laughs> Something new. Something new. It's like, this is different than what I like. But they love it. So what is it about it that they like so much, right? I didn't grow up with hymns. I had to learn them later. I'm dead serious. I started going to a Christian school. And when I was in high school, I'm like, be thou my vision. Oh, that's beautiful. I started saying like, what song is that? That was great. They go, what's wrong with you? It was be thou my vision. Heard it a thousand times. Like, well, I haven't. That's awesome. <laughs> Someone's got to look back. Someone's got to look forward. The music of the church should be a synthesis, not a domination of one side or the other. Let's keep reading. Verse three. Here's one to underline. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. This is the third lesson that music in the church should refresh our thoughts about God. How many of you tend to think of God as a warrior? When you think of Jesus Christ or the Lord, do you picture him as a warrior? Do you picture him as carrying a sword and a shield? Do you picture him as carrying a machine gun and a helmet? That just doesn't seem right to think about the Lord. It's all over the Bible. Most of us think of God as, as, you know, a shepherd or a kind old man. And those are fine, too. That's all over the Bible, too. Or we think of God as an abstraction. You know, he's the uncaused cause in the world. But the Bible is so visual with how it portrays God. He's a warrior. Like, he just wiped out a whole battalion of Egyptians on his own. He's a man of war. Every culture has its warrior God, right? They had Thor for the Norse God. They had Ares for the Greeks. We have the Lord himself. The Lord is our warrior. 
There's a Psalm 58. The Psalms had no trouble worshiping God as a warrior. Psalm 58 verse 6 says this. How would you feel if I came in and said, hey, you've got a new song today. Hope you guys like it. And the chorus goes something like this. Oh God, break the teeth in their mouths. Tear out the fangs of the young lions, oh Lord. Got a new song today. It's called Tear Out Their Fangs. Some people might find that inappropriate, but it's right there in the Bible. I'm t- I wouldn't feel super comfortable with that either. Like, what, what did we just sing? <laughs> he, he didn't just say tear out their fangs or break their teeth, did he? But look at Revelation 19. Jesus returns and he says there's a sword coming out of his mouth and he's riding on a white horse and his robe is dipped in blood. There's two images of the robe dipped in blood. One of them is the Lord's blood. And then there's another image where it's everybody else's blood. There's a says where the Lord has been treading the winepress of Basra. I just killed all these men and that's why my robe is bloody like this. Now that's poetry, right? But how would you like some of this poetry in Calvary Chapel Trustville? That's a church that sings songs about like blood and breaking teeth and stuff like that. Music and poetry serve important functions and then they can reclaim dusty, forgotten, or uncomfortable images of God and bring them back to the people. Because we have things that we're comfortable with. But the Bible is often much broader than we're prepared to go. And music and worship are helpful in bringing them back to us. Say, no, 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 this is scriptural. God as a warrior is only one of these. How about God as a judge? That's like a well-formed song that portrays God as a judge, slamming the gavel down at the end of time and sending the unrighteous off to hell. What God as a husband? That's biblical, isn't it? He's the bridegroom and we're the bride? A lot of fellas got real uncomfortable with that right there. What about God as an avenger? That God will execute vengeance. Well, we're not supposed to take revenge. No, that's not what it says. It says vengeance is whose? Mine, says the Lord. What about a mother hen? Jesus compared himself to a mother hen, didn't he? How often I wanted to gather you like a mother hen gathers her chicks under her wings. How'd you like to have a chicken song? (laughs) Or he compared God? It would be 100% biblical to do that. All of this is biblical and we need it all. It stretches our understanding of what it means to be a disciple of God. If God is a warrior, then what does that make me? Makes you a soldier. Psalm 18.34 says, The Lord trains my hands for war so that my arms can bend a bow of bronze. Remember when I first went bow hunting with my dad, I was like 11, and he's like, all right, draw the bow. And I'm like, you can't quite get it. And then when it finally draws, you're, oh, I finally did it. It's a bow of bronze. This thing is made out of bronze, but you're just going to bend it back. You're that jacked that you can draw a bow that large. That's in the Bible. They were singing about that in the temple. What does this tell us? Don't just stay in the comfort zone with your worship music. We've got to be pushing the boundaries as long as they are scriptural boundaries. So many people, I, I hear this all the time. We've got to push it with worship music. I'm like, I'm with you. There's plenty of places to go in here. Why don't any of y'all go that way? May I say, we should not let our modern, hyper-peaceful disposition blunt our knowledge of God. Verse 4 and 5. Pharaoh's chariots and his host he cast into the sea. That word cast can also be shot, like he shot them with an arrow into the sea. And his chosen officers were sunk in the Red Sea. The floods covered them. They went down into the depths like a stone. This is the fourth lesson. We use music and song in the church to remember what God has done, to give testimony. I'm sure every one of us knows of a worship song that brings back memories and causes us to tear up. 
or you're worshiping and you might be distracted and checking your watch and seeing what time and that song comes in and you're in the spirit immediately because you're a member. Man, I, I, for me, that song Shout to the Lord gets me every time. I learned how to worship to that song. And I hear some of these old ones and everybody's like, oh, I don't really care for that. I'm like, oh, I do. Because that is right. That's in my heart what the Lord did for me with that song. And most of the songs we sing these days are, are general songs. I think that's okay. Songs that are, could basically apply to any situation. But it would be interesting to, to try and explore having some specific ones as well. You know, we don't do so many really special music here. I wouldn't have a problem with doing it in the future. But, you know, when you have that special song where somebody's going to get up and they're going to sing and give testimony through song of what God did through them. That's what it says in Deuteronomy 31, 22. Moses wrote this song the same day and taught it to the people of Israel. And that song was a history of what had happened since they left Egypt. That y'all going to learn this song so that you can remember. I would never be able to remember all 50 states if I did not know that song, 50 Nifty United States. I was in Russia one time and uh, we were doing a concert at the church and they, you know, we had, were having some fun and they, they had a prize that they gave away and they said, Anybody, whoever can name the most U.S. states will win you know, a shirt or whatever it was. And so everybody from Russia, you know, California, Florida, Texas, and then nothing after that, right? And so I think the most anybody got was 12. And then uh, the guy, Sasha, turns to me and says, Tyler, can you name all 50 states? And I sang the 15 nifty United States song. And they're like, how did you do that? I'm like, well, don't ask me to, to say it to you. I need the melody to do it. Music helps us remember. In order to remember their history, Moses put it to music. How exciting is it when you can know the background of the psalm? When you know that Psalm 51, which is, Cast me not away from your presence, O God. Take not your Holy Spirit. That that was written right after the incident with Bathsheba. When David had committed this grievous sin. Hannah wrote a song in 1 Samuel 2. All about how the Lord had provided her with a child. Deborah wrote a song with Barak after the Lord gave them deliverance. Solomon says, wrote 1,005 songs. We've got Song of Solomon in the Bible. Jeremiah wrote the whole book of Lamentations to remember the destruction of Jerusalem. Samson wrote a song in Judges 15, 16 about how God helped him kill a thousand Philistines with a donkey's jawbone. He did. Go back and read it. It says, with a donkey's jawbone, heaps upon heaps, with a donkey's jawbone, I have slain a thousand Philistines. It's almost kind of like a na-na-na-na-na-na type song. Y'all know the song, It Is Well With My Soul. Horatio Spafford wrote that song after all of his children were were killed when their boat collided with another and sank in the ocean. And doesn't that just hit harder when you know that he wrote that song, though Satan should buffet, though trials should come, and he had just lost all of his children? For my part, that song we sing sometimes, Good to Me, God Has Been So Good to Me. I wrote that song when I found out that uh, little Josie May had been conceived and we were going to have another baby and that it was going to be a girl. I was so excited. Oh, God has been so good to me. And I'm like, i got to write, where's my guitar? i got to write this song. And I wrote it down. And like for me, every time I sing that, I, I think of that moment. When something is done by the Lord, the testimonies ought to flow. Remember it and sing about it, lest we forget about it. We're all coming out of this pandemic now. We've got to write some songs about this. Remember what God did. Verses 6 through 10, we'll go a little longer section here. Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. 
There's a song waiting to be written right there in that verse. In the greatness of your majesty, you overthrow your adversaries. You send out your fury, it consumes them like stubble. At the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up. The flood stood up in a heap. The deeps congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy said, I will pursue. I will overtake. I will divide the spoil. My desire shall have its fill of them. I will draw my sword. My hand shall destroy them. You blew with your wind. The sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. That's where that line from the Ten Commandments comes, by the way, when the waters close up. Thou didst blow with thy wind. Comes right out of here, right out of the Bible. What's the fifth lesson? Music serves to teach theology through poetry. Poetic instruction. You're learning from these verses about God's strength, his omnipotence, that whole thing I laid out earlier about his mastery over the depths. So much of our theology in the Bible comes from poetry. Even as I said, most of the prophets were written in verse. They would have sang or chanted these prophecies that they gave. Here's a prophetic line that we all draw great theology from. Isaiah 53, 5. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. You can feel the parallelism there, right? Pierced for our transgressions, wounded for our iniquities, right? Even in the New Testament, it seems in certain places that Paul is using poetic statements to teach doctrine. Because sometimes we read it and we go, the experts in the language, much more than I, look at this and go, this is poetry. This is how the Greeks did poetry. For example, 1 Timothy 3.16, great indeed we confess is the mystery of godliness. You can feel the rhythm here. He was manifested in the flesh vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. They might have sung that in the churches. So worship music ought to support and give voice to what is being taught by the pastor. And there are those that want to disparage the theological sensibility of worship leaders, musicians, and artists. There's a line in a, in a book that we read, and it's a great book, but there's a line there where he's, he's kind of criticizing a popular song, I can't remember which one it was, that didn't quite fully represent the truth how he would have liked it. And the final line of his paragraph was, artists make notoriously bad theologians. To which I immediately respond, yes, and theologians make notoriously bad artists. Amen. <laughs> they, you can say, well, though, that song is great, but the truth isn't right. Hey, that might be true. But you as a teacher also need to work to make the truth beautiful and interesting because it is interesting and it is beautiful. So here's the thing. We ought to hold our songs to high doctrinal standards. And if you all, you know, you can talk to the worship team. I'm like this. There are sometimes I don't even think it's wrong. I just think it might give the wrong impression. Or sometimes I'm like, yeah, that's good. And I think I know what they say by that. But I, there's so many ones that we don't have to worry about. Let's just sing those instead. You know? And we ought not to dismiss the style. I think a lot of times what people are dismissing is the style of a song, not the words of a song. You also ought to remember, by the way, and I've had this conversation many times. I was a worship leader in Lynchburg for 11 years. So I've had this talk. Poetry, by its very nature, is visual and expressive. And we should not get bent out of shape over metaphors and figurative language. For example, God does not have nostrils. But it says in this passage, God blew with his nostrils and blew the waters. 
Why are we going to say, well, we can't sing that. People are going to think God has nostrils. No, you get the point. So sometimes when a song is being sung and you feel like it, you know, it's kind of pushing it, what is, what is the point of the song? Are, are they trying to make a doctrinal point? Or are they trying to get people excited about the doctrinal point? And, and this is very important, I think. Because there are some people that they feel like they can't have any fun. You know, they can't enjoy the worship at all. And sometimes they'll criticize things not even realizing that that is, in fact, a biblical phrase they're using. You know that song Chris Tallin wrote back in the day? You are the Lord, the famous one. And somebody came up to me one time, and he was respectful in this case, but he said, I don't like that song. Is it because, you know, it's like we're saying God is a celebrity, and we shouldn't have celebrity culture and that whole thing. And I took him right to the Psalms where it says, the Lord is a famous God. Do what you are famous for, O Lord. Your fame has gone throughout the earth. And he very respectfully goes, okay, I was wrong. All right, it was, a, it was a point of instruction for me to bring that to him. Another one people get bent out of shape about is in the secret, in the quiet place. It's like, what is that all about? We're, we're in the secret place. What, what, it seems so weird and romantic singing about God. How many times in the Bible does it say, I have found you in the secret place? What, is, what does Jesus say? When you pray, go into your, your back room and pray, and the Lord who sees in secret will reward you openly. I, I mean, the, the, you might not like that song, but don't come out and say it's wrong somehow to sing it. I, this happens all the time. And there are some times where I've been like, yeah, okay, uh, let's not sing that one. But the other times I'm like, no, we're singing that one because I'm, you know, I'm not going to get bent out of shape over this. And I will say, Calvinists are the worst about this. I don't know what it is, but they're, they're very picky about how things are phrased when most of the time you got to go, oh, come on. That's really what it is. Oh, come on. Yes, God doesn't have nostrils, but you get the point, don't you? It's poetry. And there are a lot of inane songs that have been written, all right? There are some really dumb songs. But there are so many good ones. And I would say a lot of the groups that get disparaged by, by, for the songs they sing, they've written some of the best doctrinal songs in the church. And we need to make sure that we're not just looking at the bad examples. We're also looking at the good ones. There are even some psalms. There are some psalms that are just long and in-depth and they have long lessons. And then there's like some of them that just go, praise the Lord for this and praise the Lord for that and praise the Lord for this. The end. Just quick, short, and to the point. Music serves to teach theology through poetry. Verses 11 and 12. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? You stretched out your right hand, and the earth swallowed them. Now, this one might feel like a bit of a stretch in the point I'm trying to make, but we're going to do it anyway. Lesson six that worship music should both accommodate and correct the culture. They're speaking of God among the gods. And some folks would be like, wait a minute, there's only one God. Well, yes, obviously there are no other gods, but in another sense there are. They're worshiping these false gods. Deuteronomy talks about these demons that they falsely worship as gods. Paul in 1 Corinthians will talk about in one sense an idol is nothing. In another sense, you're paying homage to something demonic and evil. And so you speak of God among the gods, even though we know that there is one and there is no other. Because they're, they're speaking to how, how the culture understood this in order to make a, make a point. Isaiah 46.1 does a great job of this. It says, Baal bows down, Nebo stoops. Now, is Baal real? Is Nebo real? Well, there might be a demon that has taken the place of that thing. But, you know, it's not like your God is somehow, oh, yes, you're the real God. Because he then goes on and says, your idols are on beasts and livestock. These things you carry are born as burdens on weary beasts. 
In one sense, they're accommodating the culture and saying, your God bows down to ours. And another, they're correcting it by saying, but it's not really a God at all. It's a rock <laughs> that you're carrying around. Your donkey has to carry your God around. Our culture has its priorities. Every culture does. Its priorities, its aesthetic sensibilities. These should be honored and answered in the church. For example, the song, Good, Good Father, so popular. And there's a line in there where he says, I've heard the, the tender whispers of love in the dead of night. And there are some people that heard that song and said, wait a minute, we don't hear tender whispers. We've got the Bible. Don't you know you should, the Bible is what you're supposed to, to read. And which I back up and say, okay, but consider this. That was the, the, the most popular worship song, most downloaded, most sung of all time when it came out. Why? Because it was the most fatherless generation the world had ever seen. And people were hungering to sing about God as their father. It was answering a cry from the heart of the people. So we've got to learn to answer what they're looking for, but also to accommodate it. Our worship is not going to look like 1800s Western America anymore. That ship has long sailed. We don't live in that world any longer. Just like we wouldn't rebuild medieval cathedrals and have you know, Gregorian chants in this church. Might be fun to do like as a special service one time. But we live in 2021 America. So we're going to worship the Lord in a 2021 American style. That's part of the gospel tapestry, right? Every tribe and tongue and nation and culture brings its own unique voice to the Lord and no generation should ever be told, your generation doesn't get to do that because it's wrong. And we all ought to be coming together to do that. That's why we write songs that will speak to the culture at the same time, correcting it. We're going to write songs that talk about God's uniqueness, that there is one God and there is no other. We're going to sing about sin and the blood, even though the world doesn't like that and doesn't want to hear it. They need to hear it. And we're going to downplay, as a corrective to the world, we're going to downplay showmanship in the church. We're not, we're not going to have celebrity worship leaders, at least here, because that's a problem the world has, of being obsessed with the show and obsessed with the celebrity. We're going to correct that. But how much can you accommodate and still be within what the Lord has called you to do? Paul did this in Acts 17, 22-23. He stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you're very religious. For I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, and I found an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God, what therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. Now, he, Paul could have come in and say, you're all wrong. God's not unknown. There's only one God. You've never heard of him. Paul saw his opening and says, they, they know that there might be something more. So let me fill in that gap. And then later on, I'm going to explain. And in fact, this is the only true Lord. It's important to do. We would never expect a tribe in the jungle of Peru to worship like we do. In fact, we would go and hear the way they play and the way they sing and the songs they write and say, isn't this beautiful? Isn't it wonderful? They're taking their culture and giving it back to the Lord. But somehow we come back to our culture and we try to do the same thing. We say, no, no, no. We should not deny ourselves the same privilege. You can also, by the way, apply this to your own church culture. If we get stuck in a rut of only loud songs, we're only hyped up, we're only loud, we're only running around getting excited, and there's never a moment to be quiet and still in the presence of the Lord, you got to learn how to do that. And the opposite way, if you only, you, get, you only know how to be quiet and still in the presence of the Lord, you don't know how to celebrate and shout with loud crashing cymbals, you've got to learn how to do that. It's the work of the worship leader to gently and lovingly shake that up. Got to go fast now. 13 through 16. 
You have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. The peoples have heard, they tremble. Pangs have seized the inhabitants of Philistia. Now are the chiefs of Edom dismayed. Trembling seizes the leaders of Moab. All the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. Terror and dread fall upon them because of the greatness of your arm. They are still as a stone till your people, O Lord, pass by, till the people pass by whom you have purchased. This is very, very specific to their situation, isn't it? We, we, we're not excited that the people of Philistia are trembling at us, are we, here today? So what's the seventh lesson? You've got to write your own songs to declare what God has done for you. The children of Israel wrote this song that was so specific to their situation. It was theirs, and that's what made it wonderful. These are our songs. In the same way, there ought to be a continual outgrowth of music from every church. I really believe that. In Luke 1, Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. She's singing about what God has done for her in the Magnificat. There is a place, of course, for the skillful to use their skills to write songs that everybody can relate to. David did that all the time. But each of us also should have a song to sing. David also put songs in there that were very unique to his situation. These days, unfortunately, so many songs are being churned out by the Nashville worship music machine. Like they're just being pumped out. They're being put together more or less in a laboratory to be consumed like it's a McDonald's hamburger. You don't, you don't want to look behind that curtain too closely. It can be really disappointing. Now, are they good songs? Yes. Yeah, they are. And you know what is great about having songs that we all sing? They unite us with a common voice. You know, you go from your church here in Alabama, you go visit somebody out in Texas, and they're singing some of the same songs you do. That's a pretty cool thing that we're all singing together. It's a needed thing. But that system is not always so godly because it's not being run at the very top by believers. It's being run by people that are checking out their bottom line, which is why you will see trends in worship music until somebody comes along and breaks the trend. Somebody writes a song right now, the trend is songs all about miracles and believing God's going to do miracles. So we are currently being glutted with songs like that until finally everybody goes, enough, something different, and then you're going to see the thing change again. So what does this mean? Should we tear it all down? Well, maybe, but that's not my role. My role is to make sure that we are not dependent upon other people for the songs we're going to sing. We ought to encourage and cultivate expressions of worship in our own midst. Psalm 40 verse 3 says, The Lord put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. We ought to be writing our own songs. And also, not trying so hard to clone what's happening in another church somewhere. To clone what's happening in Brooklyn Tabernacle. To clone what's happening at Elevation Church or anything like that. Sound like you. I tell the worship team this all the time. Y'all should sound like you. Don't, you know, take the song, but do something with it. So we sound like us. And we have a stated goal at Calvary Chapel Trustville that down the line, we want to be singing a lot of our own stuff that is coming out of our situation that we know and that we recognize so that we're not dependent on somebody else. Verses 17 through 19. You will bring them in and plant them on your own mountain, the place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode, the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established, for the Lord will reign forever and ever. For when the horses of Pharaoh with his chariots and his horsemen went into the sea, the Lord brought back the waters of the sea upon them, but the people of Israel walked on dry ground in the midst of the sea. 
Eighth lesson is that worship music should build the faith of the worshiper. Because of what God had done at the Red Sea, they had faith for the rest of the journey, which was the conquest of Canaan, the promised land. Very similar to Simeon's song in Luke chapter 2, where he says, Lord, now you let your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. All he had seen was baby Jesus. That gave him faith for everything that was going to come after it. The songs we sing ought to strengthen our trust for what God is going to do in the future. And there are some folks that don't like strong faith songs. They feel like they're going to give people the wrong idea, which I find completely ridiculous. They would prefer very dry doctrinal statements set to music. And there are lots of songs that are written like that. But you need both of those things. You need strong, solid doctrine that builds to a strong, passionate declaration of faith. It's no accident that when the worship is playing, you feel like your faith is at its strongest. We've got to leverage that in the church. It can be so hard to declare faith in the Lord during the week when the bills are late and your boss is mad at you and you and your wife aren't really getting along. But when you come here, this is the place where your strength and your faith should be built up and be rejuvenated. In Acts 16.25, when Paul and Silas were thrown in prison, what did they start to do? Started to sing. Because they were not going to let their faith be broken. How are we going to build our faith in the middle of a dungeon after we just got beaten with rods in the public square? We're going to sing. We can be honest in our songs, right? Psalm 22, the opening line is, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But it ends with, But I will trust you, no matter what. This is the reason we call worship music uplifting, because God uses it to lift you up, right? Verse 20, Then Miriam the prophetess, the sister of Aaron, took a tambourine in her hand, and all the women went out after her with tambourines and dancing. What I want to focus on here, verse 20, Miriam the prophetess, worship ministry is a ministry of prophecy. This is an interesting one that we might not fully grasp, but the Bible links prophecy and music a lot. In 1 Samuel 10, we see the prophets singing and playing music. And when Saul got too close, the Spirit came on him too, and he started to prophesy. You can see the prophets were poets. They were writing songs. I've experienced this, that when the music plays and begins to glorify the Lord and it catches your heart, very often the Spirit of the Lord will rush upon you as you hear the song. That's a good thing. That's not a bad thing. 2 Kings 3.15, Elisha was asked to prophesy, cold, right? He wasn't coming out of the presence of God. They asked him for something. And he says in 2 Kings 3.15, bring me a musician. And when the musician played, the hand of the Lord came upon him. There's an interesting passage. This tells us that even instrumental music has a spiritual dimension to it. So be sober. Don't, Don't get caught up, but don't fight it either. And it tells us that the ministry of music in the church is a holy thing that should be done by holy people because it is a prophetic ministry at work. One more reason, by the way, that we should be writing our own songs. 1 Corinthians 14, 26, I'm not going to read it for time's sake, but it's talking about the gifts of the Spirit. And one of the things he includes is when you come together, you all have a hymn to share. He includes it in that supernatural ministry. This is why I hate the minimization of singing in the church because it is prophetic. Many people debate, is preaching prophecy or not? It's kind of yes and no, but there's a lot more links between singing and prophecy in the Bible than I would say preaching and teaching. 
So we ought to honor the ministry of music. It's not a sing-along. It's not the opening commercials and the end credits. And it's certainly not a self-indulgent time for you to criticize and pick the songs you like and don't like. It's holy work, and it should remain holy. And then verse 21, Miriam sang to them, Sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he's thrown into the sea. Tenth and finally, here's a very practical one. Music ministry is available to women. And this teaches us all about that. This is a question that pastors ask all the time. Should you have women worship leaders? The first song leader in the Bible was a woman. Unless you count Moses who came earlier in this passage, but it's all together, right? Many people debate that. We see this later on in scripture too, which just makes sense. If worship is prophecy, or at least contains an element of prophecy, probably better to say that. Women are permitted to prophesy in the New Testament. 1 Corinthians 11, 5 gives us instruction for when a woman prophesies. Acts 21, verse 9 says that Philip had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. But this also tells us something else. That worship ministry is, in the final analysis, to be subordinate to teaching. Because teaching, we know, is a station of authority exclusive to the men in the church. 1 Timothy 2, verse 12, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Which tells us how we ought to view the role of a worship leader. Because very often the worship leader can start to muscle the pastor out of the way. And also it should tell us how, how careful we ought to be in the use of the term worship pastor. And I'll tell you, I'll just give you my, my thoughts on this. And there are those that disagree, but I'll just tell you how I feel on this. I'm not comfortable using the term worship pastor for a woman at all. And I'm not comfortable using it for a man if he does not meet the other qualifications that a pastor or an elder must meet in 1 Timothy. The trouble is the worship leader often has way too much clout in the congregation and he can start to cause trouble. And he thinks because he's got great talent and I can make the people move when I sing, I can do whatever I want because the pastor needs me. And very often pastors will knuckle under to their worship leader or their worship team because they want to keep them happy because it's making the church grow. We ain't going to do that here. I'm telling you that right now. If a man has great talent but terrible character, he has no business leading worship. And depending, by the way, on how you translate Ezekiel 28, 13, it's either pipes and timbrels and flutes or it's other other words, depending on how you translate it. Satan himself could have been the master of music in heaven. And Luke 10 tells us he fell like lightning from heaven when he got prideful. I'm not saying that musicians are especially susceptible to pride, but they're certainly towards the top of the list. And I'm speaking as one of them, I'm telling you. A lot of emotion, a lot of prominence and flash is associated with the ministry of music and only the godly should partake in it. And of course, the worship leader should be subordinate to the pastors and the elders of the church. Ideally, you'd want your worship leader to be one of the pastors and elders of the church, but that's not always the case. So those are our 10 things. May have been a little meandering, but they're important things for us to know. The church has had music since they were singing the Psalms, the Gregorian chants, the orchestral style, the hymns and the pipe organs, the spirituals, the gospel songs to our modern contemporary worship. We are part of that new tradition, and gladly so, as long as we meet these requirements. The best thing to learn from this is that our Lord is worthy of skillful, passionate worship. 
Psalm 48.1 says, Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised in the city of our God. Amen. There will always be temptations to go too slow or too fast or be too flashy or too dull, but we must be willing to take the risk in service of the Lord. I don't want this church just to be consumers of worship music. I want us to be spirit-filled trendsetters in the worship of the Lord. And if you've never experienced the joy and the depth of true spirit-filled worship, then I pray that God will capture your heart.